Welcome to the podcast, your inside look at electronic publishing. From ebooks to websites to podcasts and more, join us as we interview the professionals on the cutting edge of publishing. Hi there, everybody. This is Amber Cunningham for the podcast here with Stuart Ohm. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Amber. Stuart is currently the Director of User Interface Development at Kayak, which is a site that produces the lowest prices for flights, hotels, and rental cars. Tonight we'll be talking about Stuart's experience with user interface development and user experience as it pertains to Kayak, as well as the electronic publishing industry as a whole. So how long have you been working in user interface development and how did you get your start in programming? Well, yeah, those are um, two very different questions, actually, because I've been I've been programming for about fifteen years, but but some of that programming is really not related to user user experience at all. It's kind of something that I came into over time. And I think actually that's true for a lot of people in this industry. We start doing development tasks for companies because they pay us to do that, and then those of us who care uh, a little bit more about the experience tend to gravitate in that direction. So I've probably only been doing user experience for uh, the last five or six years. What did you start out doing exactly? Let's see, uh, so when I was uh, when I was a teenager, I was working for a company that did mortgage origination software, which is a really really dry thing that banks need to do um, to process people's mortgages. Mm, sounds really fun. <laughs> and it had a user interface, um, but it wasn't much to speak of. It was something out of this sort of out of the early '80s, and uh, and they had been maintaining that over time. So. That was probably the least user experience related work I've done as far as programming goes. So you did a lot of coding and all that? A lot of monkeying with, with computer systems that really should have been put to death a long time ago. Oh, gosh. <laughs> How frustrating. What exactly do you do now at Kayak? Uh, at Kayak, I get to uh, do a lot of really interesting things, actually. So it's it's a pretty cool site, and it's not just a website. It's also uh, a mobile app. It's also... Um, well, it's a lot of things, um, <laughs> and uh, and so what I do there is I lead our um, our user interface development team, which means uh, when we're when we come up with designs or new features, those go through a design process, and then I get to build them. So what you see on the screen when you're interacting on the uh, on the kayak website, that's something that my team has built. Oh, that's so cool that you get to work so closely with uh, what people actually see on the website. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's actually um, it's it's pretty cool. One of the greatest things that I, I like about Kayak is that people recognize it. If I tell someone that I work at Kayak, they usually have, if they've heard of it, a strong positive reaction. And to add on top of that, the fact that a lot of the things that they're reacting positively to are things I've worked on means that I get to enjoy my job a lot more than if I was working on something that no one ever saw. Yeah, it's got to be tough to be behind the scenes and other people not being able to see much of what you've done, um, especially if you're working so hard. So I'm glad that you've gotten to that point where <laughs> you can actually have something produced on the website that people can really appreciate. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't want to take away from anything that my colleagues who do work behind the scenes do. They, they do really fantastic work, but that's not, that's not for everyone. Yeah. And what does a typical workday look like for you? What could we see you doing within the kayak office? <laughs> you would see me answering a lot of emails. Uh, but, but, you know, behind the scenes, what I'm really doing in, in all of the, that email answering and, and talking to people is, is coordinating different teams at kayak because as, uh, as the 
development team that makes all of the, the user interfaces there, we're essentially uh, a blocking point for most of the company. If, uh, if there's another part of the company who needs something developed, maybe it's an advertisement or it's a new search feature, they can build that or they can build up all of the other components of it, but no one will ever see it until it comes to our team and we build the front end for it. So I have to spend a lot of time um, making sure that our team has uh, the time and the right priorities to build out these features that other teams are asking for. Oh, okay. So what does your sort of management regime look like? Kayak's a funny company, funny in a good way, uh, in that it's very flat. There's not a lot of hierarchy there. They, uh, we certainly do have managers and, and we have people whose titles are vice president of such and such, but everyone sits really at the same place, at the same tables, and does very similar work. So we prioritize in some ways, in a kind of organic way, the things that people work on are the things that they care about. And the things that my team work on uh, are the things that I think they ought to work on. So I have a little bit of discretion in that. And sometimes it, it probably seems arbitrary, but we're really, at the end of the day, just trying to make the best product for our users and make the most money while we do that. That's awesome. I mean, that's the dream, I think, for a lot of programmers and uh, especially me as a designer. I really wish I could work in a team environment because I feel like b bouncing ideas off of other people is really helpful in terms of user experience. I think one of the things that allows us to, to do that, though, is that we have a really exceptional team. And if you have a team that you really can't depend on, if you have a team that's made up of people who... Uh, maybe can't pull their own weight, then that's not possible. You really do have to have a more hierarchical or even dictatorial uh, organization because you can't actually trust people's judgment or their ability to complete a task. And those are not great places to work. At Kayak, we have a fairly rigorous hiring process, and we're very careful to only select people that we know will be exceptional team members. And so when you have a team like that, that you know everyone uh, is, is totally dependable, then you can have a little bit more freedom, I think. So here's an interesting question. What are three things that are completely necessary in order for a user to have a good experience with a website? Okay, yeah, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. I'm not sure I'll give you three, the, the top three, but I'll give you just three off the cuff. The number one thing, and this just pops right into my head, is people don't want to feel stupid. And I think that that's not restricted to websites, but really any time you're working with a computer especially, there's an implicit goal that all, all users have, which is that they don't want to feel stupid. And it's sometimes hard for people to articulate that, but I think if you dig down, that's what you'll find, that um, whenever you're interacting with a complicated system, that you may have a specific goal, like, say, <clears throat> booking a flight or uh, sending an email or, or, or writing a document. But actually, more important than that goal is just not feeling stupid. And I think that every other, every other thing that is important to a user really does stem from that, that they want to feel empowered, that they're able to accomplish their goals. Because really, what a website is, is it's a tool. Maybe, well, I, I shouldn't say that, actually. Some websites are not tools. Some websites are games, some communication tools. But, but most of them are, are tools that we use to achieve um, specific things, uh, specific goals. And... When, when that goal is actually impeded by a website, then it stops serving any purpose at all. And I think that's the, the, the worst thing that a website or really any application can do. Something else that would be like predictability. Um, and I think that that's actually really just an extension of what, uh, uh, of not feeling stupid. If, um, if I go to a website and I expect a, a widget to work one way or the other and it doesn't work the way I expect it to, then I'll be confounded, even if only temporarily. And that's a, that's a really bad experience for a user. 
Yeah, because I mean, the entire point of a website is to make things easier for you. <laughs> Without websites like Kayak, people would have to go to a ton of other places to find pricing and everything. And the entire point of gathering all that information is to just make the process smoother. And it's definitely really important that you guys on your team are per just making sure that everything is easy to access. Right, right. And uh, and so those are two things I just said that, that websites shouldn't do. Um, one thing that I think they, they ought to do, which very few websites uh, accomplish, and I, I, I wish actually Kayak did more of, is delight their users. Um, it's one thing to meet someone's expectations, but I think it's, it's quite another thing to exceed them to such an extent that the, the experience becomes kind of magical. And I, I think when we experience that on a website or in any kind of application, when it, something we were expecting is not only there, but it's there in such a degree that we're delighted. That really turns us from users into people who love uh, an experience, who, who become loyal to a brand. Uh, you can have a website that has personality, that has voice. And I think that's something we actually do fairly well at Kayak, where you know we have a sense of humor, we're a little bit irreverent. Um, and people oh, yeah, your uh, April Fool's thing was <laughs> so good. Oh, I'm glad you liked that, yeah. Um, that was uh, kind of a long time in the making. Um, we thought, wouldn't it be great if people could search not just for hotels, flights, and cars, but, but also for bathrooms. Um, <laughs> Hilarious. We have, we, we have a lot of fun sometimes. That's part, one part of it is having a kind of a, a voice that is humorous and recognizable. But another part of it, I think, is just being less of a computer. And unfortunately, all, all websites really are their computers. And the things that computers do well, they do very well. And the things they do poorly, they do very poorly. And I think that uh, as users, we recognize that and we come to expect computers to act like computers. They're very literal. They never, not never, but they rarely predict what we might want in the future. They almost always just respond to what we're asking for right now. And so when a website uh, or any application actually can think ahead a little bit, um, which is really just a way of saying when the people who program that website can think ahead a little bit and predict what their, what their visitors might want one or two steps down the road, then I think the experience is suddenly a little bit magical. Um, I'm trying to think of a really good example of that. I mean, just through my experience, I don't really travel much, but the few times that I have used Kayak just to goof off and see how much it would cost me to go to Italy, it has been a sort of magical experience because you source all different prices from different sites and give me a comparison that otherwise I'd have to take hours and hours to find. And that sort of thing feels a bit magical. <laughs> Well, I think that maybe I maybe I take it for granted because I work there. Um, so I'm glad you think so. And I'm, you know, I think that Meta Search is, which is what we do. You know, we're a Meta Search engine. I think that it is a really great leap forward, at least in, in as far as um, travel searching goes. But I think you might be giving us too much credit in describing that as magical because it is, in fact, exactly what we promise. When you come to Kayak, we say when you search us, you'll be searching for hundreds of sites. And so I think what makes that experience what takes it beyond just what you're expecting is doing something that you didn't expect. So for instance, if you visit a website like Kayak, and every time you visit, you set some of the filters in the exact same way. Maybe every time you come to the site, you say you only want to search for flights that are less than $400, say. 
Uh, as far as I know, every single website uh, that does travel search will make you set that filter every single time you visit the site. Oh, okay. And maybe the first three times you do it, it makes sense because just doing it once, they probably don't want to keep that filter permanent because you might want to change your mind later. But if you did it four or five times, you know, maybe it makes sense to just remember that in the future. And if they did that, wouldn't that be delightful? If they just realized <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that you were actually the kind of user who, who remembered these, who, who really cared about these things, and, and that was the only way you searched then maybe they should just remember you in, in the way that if you were dealing with a travel agent and every single time you worked with a travel agent, you said, look, I can only fly for less than $400. That travel agent, after the first two times you visited, would, would stop recommending anything more than that. Yeah, sort of like how Google tracks what you're searching for. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, Google, even if you don't log into Google with an account, they actually have a profile of you that they're using um, that's more or less tied to your browser or your computer and they'll track you over time and they'll, they'll, they'll learn what sorts of things you're searching for. And then when you start to type, the things they suggest to you will be based on what they think you might be interested in. Yeah. And they're doing that without even telling you they're doing it, which is really a nice way of, of giving someone a user experience that is improved, but they didn't have to literally ask for. Yeah. And I think a lot of people now, I was talking to uh, a few relatives about this. They were saying that they don't like the idea of being tracked and their mm. searches uh, being looked after by Google. And I asked them, I, was, I said, well, what would you do otherwise? It would be a little bit tougher to get to the things that you want to see on the web. And I don't think a lot of people realize that it's actually very helpful in a way. I mean, there are there are a few uh, negative aspects to it. Like, I don't know. It's it's a little freaky to think about uh, computer uh, tracking all of your habits online, but it's also trying to make you have the best user experience possible. Oh, definitely. And I think that one of the challenges that Google faces, and not just Google, but other other companies that work with a lot of data, like Facebook is to give you that in improved user experience without creeping you out. I mean, that's part of the challenge, right? Yeah. Because it is a little bit creepy to think that they're tracking all this information about you. So so what they have to do, and I think they're doing a good job of it for the most part, is improve that user experience for you by giving you that, that cultivated data, but not telling you how they're doing it, and not even necessarily showing you they're doing it, just doing it in a way that's so good that you don't even think about it. Yeah, it's very true. It's it's almost deceiving, but I mean, otherwise it wouldn't really go over very well with many users, I think. I mean, I think that that particular example is something that we're also as as users getting more accustomed to as we enter a, a world where so much of our data is tracked online. Yeah. And I think that in the future or even really now, we're starting to get more used to that and more accustomed to it so that it's no longer weird that we show up on a website and we see our face next to an Amazon.com logo or we yeah. see our face next to Facebook. We sort of expect it. Yeah, it's sort of we're becoming sort of desensitized, I think, which is great for web developers and user experience designers. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. So what IT skills are absolutely necessary to perform your job? <laughs> um Actually, I think that my job is largely defined by my ability to be reasonable. And uh, I mean, it's a weird thing to say that my, my, my primary skill is actually just being a reasonable person. 
but I, I have to deal with so many different um, teams and, and, and different competing sometimes uh, requests that it's a matter of setting people's expectations of helping people see the value in, in certain other projects that we might have going on so that they don't think that they're necessarily being uh, turned down, but that they understand that their turn may come, but, but not every task at kayak is equally valid is equally valuable. I don't want to suggest that the people I work with are not reasonable. In fact, uh, like I said, the team at kayak is really exceptional and everyone is really, really fantastic. <laughs> so maybe that was the wrong word to use. Uh, I suppose I was trying to be a little bit funny, but, um, but I mean, your posi- your position is essentially just guiding people, really. Yeah, guiding people, also being an advocate for for a user when the user isn't there. Um, yeah. Um, being an advocate for developers when I'm talking with designers and, and vice versa, and so being able to wear multiple multiple hats and think about things from from everyone's point of view is is kind of my job. Yeah, and it must be, is it hard to kind of step out of the programmer and um, director sort of position and into that, like put yourself in the user's seat at all? Or is it still just such a close and personal experience that it's sort of easy to do? Oh, it's definitely not easy. Um, I think that it's... I mean, it's almost impossible, which is what makes it so so difficult uh, to 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 do to to uh, to interface between the development side of of a task and the design side of a task and the experience side of a task. You can you can never really be in someone else's shoes and your own at the same time. And so, if I'm thinking about how um, someone might experience a feature, I'm also simultaneously thinking about how much time it will take to build that feature and maybe what ways we can cut corners in development that might actually uh, hurt the user experience a little bit. And so it, it's a back and forth of trying to keep all those things, all those balls in the air at the same time. Um, it's very difficult. And I think that it's something that, in fact, I don't even know if I'm particularly good at it, but someone has to do it. Um, but I, I mean, I think that one problem with a lot of, uh, a lot of websites and other applications is that there really is only one person designing them, and it is the developer. Even when websites are designed by design teams, those, those designs are often passed off to developers, and it's really up to the developer to interpret them as he or she she's fit, see, sees fit. So they may, they may say, well, you know what, it doesn't matter if that button is exactly that size or if uh, there's this much spacing between paragraphs or um, if something's slightly complicated, they may say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. And some developers are very good at, at making good judgment calls in that sense, and, and others are not. So um, it's it's difficult when when a design team isn't able to sit down with a developer. They really aren't there to advocate for their own work. And so, in some sense, I don't I don't think developers should ever be left alone. And the same way that I don't think designers should ever be allowed to design in a vacuum without the in, input of developers who, in the, at, the yeah. end, at the end of the day, have to build things. Yeah, and I find that a lot with. Um going out there looking for des- uh, design jobs, uh, just graphic design in itself. Um, I am really looking for something involving a team and involving a lot of communication between departments. And a lot of places don't have the means to do that. And it's unbelievable because I, and I imagine that's very hard to do uh, without that sort of communication happening between people doesn't seem to be happening in many places nowadays. 
Well, it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult industry. I think um, sometimes it's easy to to look at a finished product like a website and say, "Well, I know how that was built, so I I could then therefore I could build it." Yeah, but, um, that's not the case. So, I guess. I'm I'm really interested in coding. I'm sure a lot of students at Emerson are also interested in coding. It's kind of one of those things that nowadays you should have in your back pocket whenever you're going to look for a job because people just go nuts if you know HTML and CSS. It's like mm. huge for companies now. Um, but what what advice can you give to those trying to learn how to program and code? What has helped you learn in the past, and how do you keep those skills sharp? Well, you, you might get some uh, different feedback from my colleagues if you ask them whether or not I was able to keep my skills sharp. I, <laughs> I think they're they're just they're sort of sharp. Um, but um, I think yeah, you're right. Those are those are great skills to have. Although I think they are sometimes overemphasized um, by by hiring uh, managers, especially thinking that if they if they hire someone who has some experience with HTML or CSS, then they won't need to go hire professionals. You know, when it comes time to actually say build or update a website. Um, but having said that, they are still you know it's still a really really useful technology to have under one's belt. And I think to answer your other question about what the best way to do that is, um, I think the, the the worst way to do it is to say, grab a book and just try to learn it. There's so much information. There's, there's so much to learn as far as, uh, different technologies, whether it's the, the markup itself or the CSS, um, or other more complicated technologies like JavaScript or, or even backend coding down to more subtle nuances like, you know, what's the best way to compress your images or to, you know, to, to, deli- to deliver these, these, uh, these files from a web server. There's so much to learn. There's really, there's no end of things you can learn. So if you, if you try to sit down and just say, this weekend, I'm going to learn HTML. I think, um, that's a very difficult way and, and it's probably fraught with, with disaster. The, the best way that I've found is to have a project that, that you want to complete and, and then just continually work on that project. I think it's true for all technologies, not just HTML and CSS, but HTML and CSS are, are really accessible because you know, we have these websites all around us that we interact with every day. And so um, more than most technologies, we, we're all really well-versed in um, the vocabulary of websites. And so we know how buttons work. We know how drop-down menus work and how these different features work. We have a sense of what it is we want to build in the same way. Um, it's very easy for people to get into automotive uh, repair because they work with cars every day. If one is interested in learning automotive repair, it's actually pretty accessible. But something like nuclear chemistry is not. Yeah. <laughs> with some things, you just have to kind of go in there and do it. You just have to be in that sort of experience right away. Because I've, I've been trying to learn with uh, Codecademy. Oh, sure. And it's it's been pretty difficult because I haven't really been able to translate the things that I've learned to the website that I'm making for uh, this class, actually. And I think once I start implementing things that I've learned from that into the website, I'll understand them more. But right now, it's just a bunch of tags. Yeah. So and more that's- than anything, it's just it's so important to have uh, a real personal resources that you can reach out to to get advice about things because – if you if you're reading a book or reading a website or a video series, you're getting all that data in a very serial form. It's just coming one after the other, and there's no way to access individual pieces if you don't know the right questions to ask. Whereas 
if you have someone that you're working with, say someone who's senior to you in, a, in an environment, or if you're in a an internship and you have a mentor there uh, that you can ask, hey, what's the best way to do this? That person will probably have solved the same problem a dozen times and will be able to guide you in the right way of doing it. Yeah, it's all about that teamwork still. It really is. <laughs> Getting people to uh, share their experiences with you, I guess. So with user experience, I mean, there's you know, we're constantly evolving in terms of technology. Um, and how do you think advances in digital technology have helped the industry? Uh, this is sort of a big, all-encompassing question, but do you have any thoughts on that? I do, yeah. I mean, I think that um, as technology improves in the larger sense, as our bandwidth gets faster, uh, as our screens get bigger and, and sharper, um, our processing power gets you know stronger – we're able to do a lot more things. I mean, we have these cool toys available to us and we can do things with them that really we couldn't even imagine doing, uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And that's, that's pretty awesome. I, I, I love working in an industry where things are changing at such a rapid pace that within a year or two, I'll have, you know, tools available, toys to play with that I didn't have before. You know, we're, we're all thinking about building websites now, not just for big screens, but also now for small screens in a way that we didn't even care about. Uh, five or six years ago. And so that's pretty awesome that like now everyone wants to make sure that all this information is available in people's pockets at all times. And that's, it's really revolutionary actually. But at the same time, I think that in a lot of ways, all of this new technology and more powerful technology doesn't really help us solve the basic problems of, of human interaction and user experience. You know, the things that I was talking about earlier about delighting users and not making them feel stupid, those things are, have been true for for over 20 years, as far as you know, computer interactions go, 30 years really, um, since the the dawn of um, desktop computing, and they're not really things that we've gotten much better at generally. In some ways, that that's comforting to me because it means that as someone who who is who's working in, in the field of user interface and user experience, I'm I'm fairly certain that there will always be a need for people like me to to work on things professionally. But at the same time, I, I would like it if if these these uh, pieces of technology that we interact with every day. Did more to to delight us. I get I get really excited when I when I find a, a new technology. Like I bought this smart thermostat, the Nest. I don't know if you've experienced this yet, but it's this really this really cool um, intelligent thermostat that you. Can oh, put is up. that the? It's like um, it's a circle. I think I've seen it on your wall. Um, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a it's an intelligent thermostat. Um, Google actually just acquired this company, and it learns about your the patterns of your of your house's uh, heating and cooling system, so that it can actually predict uh, using some fairly intelligent algorithms when you'll want to turn up your heat or turn it down or what temperature you'll like it to be. And it uses these algorithms not only to, to anticipate your needs in the future, but also to, uh, to do them more effectively. And so it actually saves you money on your heating and cooling bills. Oh, that's awesome. It's just really this cool technology. And occasionally uh, you'll see technology like this that is just so cool and so great and is done in such an, a, a human-centric way that it kind of blows your mind. And those, those things are just few and far between, unfortunately. So, uh, you know, I'd like to think that with better and, and more interesting, uh, more, more powerful technology, we'll get more interesting uh, tools like that to play with. And I, and I guess in some sense we, we, we already are, but I think we can do better as an industry. Yeah, and that kind of goes along with my next question, actually. I was going to ask how you think advances in digital technology have hindered the industry since you work in user experience. Is it alienating us a little bit? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I'm very uh, very positive about the uh, technological improvements. I think that 
the things that computers are good at, um, they're very good at, and the things they're bad at, they're very bad at. The increases, uh, improvements in technology don't make them worse at the things they're bad at, but they don't make them better either. Sometimes you'll you'll see places where technology is used really inappropriately. It's pretty popular, I think, to uh, for for school districts now to try to give all their students uh, iPads. Um, yeah. As if this is going to somehow make learning, you know, more fun. Um, it doesn't. I mean, iPads are fun, but learning is, is learning. And, and sometimes learning is fun and sometimes it's work. Technology doesn't really change that. And, you know, maybe that's a controversial opinion. But I think that it, it certainly doesn't make it worse. Uh, the only thing that I think some people will point to is they'll say that, you know, all this, all this technology makes it easier for us to be, to be a bit lazy, I'm probably worse at math now than I was uh, when I was in high school, and I'm I'm certainly I don't remember all the things that I had to learn uh, in college about you know history or whatever because I know that at any given time I can pull my phone out of my pocket and look it up on Wikipedia, and so maybe in some sense that makes us lazier people. But I also think that the the benefits we gain from it far outweigh those downsides. Um, we now have access to you know, the host of human knowledge at our fingertips. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a different sort of intelligence that we are evolving into. Instead of having these things packed into our brains, we have the knowledge of how to access them at any moment. It's just a different way of being an intelligent species, I guess. Um, Oh, exactly. I mean, I, I am awful at math. I'm, I'm not so good with history, but because I've grown up with computers and I know that I can pick and choose what information I can like store in my head, <laughs> which is very convenient. And I can't even imagine doing, say, research papers without computers now or the internet. <laughs> the best example I can think of this is that when I was 10 years old, I probably knew two dozen or more phone numbers just off the top of my head. And today I know exactly one and it's my own phone number. And honestly, <laughs> I, I, I would only, I only know my own phone number because people ask me what it is. If they didn't, I would just look it up on my phone every time. I don't know anyone else's phone numbers. And I guess that's a bad thing, but, but not really because I always have my phone with me. Yeah, exactly. Like I've always, I think a few years ago I was more afraid of, not knowing um, certain information like phone numbers of people just in case something happened and I was stuck somewhere and uh, my phone died or something. But I always, I'm always so careful about completely charging my phone, bringing a charger with me, being very prepared in that sense. So, but yeah, I, I definitely knew like five or six phone numbers when I was younger and because, I mean, I had a cell phone, but it was the, oh my gosh, it was just an awful piece of technology that I just didn't want. <laughs> well, we are definitely in different generations ever. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, so it, in terms of that, we're actually reading a book and it basically talks about choosing what information to absorb and what to sort of leave behind. And I feel like this could relate to you in some ways. I mean, anybody can relate to just going on um, social media and choosing whether or not to pay attention to certain posts and to certain articles. And I guess my question is, what do you do to prevent a sort of 
overload of information that is pretty much useless? Like, what are your online habits? What are your social media habits in order to sort of weed out the junk that gets published? Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, I think that everyone handles these things differently. So for instance, I used to, every day I would read Google News. Uh, I would pull up Google News in the morning and I would read it between, you know, when I was eating my lunch and when I got home and I would try to follow news that way. And eventually I came to realize that I wasn't really getting a lot of valuable information from that source. It was, it was, it was more like gossip than it was like, you know, getting mm. in, in, information about international relations. Yeah. I feel like news, uh, like news channels are trying to put the entertainment value into news, but now it's not really turning into, it's just turning into gossip essentially. And sure. And I suppose in that sense, how many uh, now, how many significant real news sources are, are using new media, social media headlines, you know, to get that pop on their, on their stories, things like you won't believe what happens at three minutes and 15 seconds. Yeah. Oh. Most frustrating. Oh my gosh! I think that um, social media is, is the same has the same problem where you know there's so much information out there right available to us, and it's personalized information too about ourselves and our friends that we can consume really an endless stream of information. And uh, even if you're not interested in social media, you know maybe you're reading sites like Reddit or or Hacker News or well, I mean any any number of, of different news sites or blogs and. It's it's great. There's there's so much information out there that you can you can really be constantly consuming information and, and, and improving yourself as a person and and and, um, and these are great things. But it can also be a kind of addiction, and it can also be something that kind of stunts us in other ways. So you know, if we spend all day on Facebook or on Reddit, we may not be as productive as we'd like to be. And I think we all recognize that when we have that, like, wow, I've been I've been surfing the web for you know. Three hours. Yeah, just, you just lose yourself. It's and, and have frightening. For it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I didn't get anything out of this. I saw a few cute cat gifs and articles that were telling me about things I really don't care about, but I read them anyway. <laughs> and endless status updates. Like I guess my position on Facebook is just to kind of make funny statuses. And then I do have a few people that I connect with that otherwise I wouldn't talk to really if they weren't on Facebook. Uh, so I like to update them on my life. But other than that, it's a very strange pattern that I've been following um, in terms of social media and I have to step back sometimes and look at what I've been doing with my life and sort of reevaluate the importance of it because when we were younger, it wasn't really at the top of our list to be updating statuses every few seconds and letting people know about what's going on in our lives every few minutes. I think it's very similar to to television. There are There are some people who don't don't even own televisions. There are some people who watch maybe, you know, one or two shows a week. And there are people who consume television at a near constant um, pace where it's just, it's always on in the background of their lives. And um, I think when we look at people who, who watch television constantly, who need television, who consume it really in, indiscriminately, we all sort of look down our noses at those people and say, "Oh, it's kind of like yeah, you know, it's like unhealthy." We uh, we see it as something that's very unhealthy, but 
mean, we haven't quite gotten to that yeah. point with with uh, computer consumption, internet consumption, where where we don't we don't quite look at these things as being unhealthy. We just um, I don't know. It's a it's a it's a new era. Yeah, we sort of look at them as a way of life now. It's just how we live. Right, but it's not really any different. I think it's just it's a matter of you know are, are the things that we do in our life things that we we've selected consciously, or are they things that we just allowed to wash over us? Uh, in the same way, you know, our our, our eating our eating habits. Um, maybe we we cultivate a very particular diet, um, and maybe we just eat whatever is in front of us. And I think there's moderation in all these things, and and there there are intelligent things we can do, and there are things that we can do that are unintelligent. And there's I think all of us have a mix of them. Yeah, and I think um, this book, The Information Diet, actually focus, focuses a lot on being conscious of what you are consuming instead of just reading through everything and um, absorbing all of this information that really just doesn't really get you anywhere um, in terms of growth, in terms of like where you are in your life. Um, and it's definitely something that people need to think about more because we are so fueled by knowing everything that's going on at every minute of every day. And even within our friends' personal lives, which is a very interesting and kind of strange thing that we have become accustomed to. It's just going to become uh, more more weirder, weirder and weirder and, you know, uh, more advanced and more advanced as things like uh, Google Glass or other similar technologies become more and more miniaturized as we're able to really properly be always online uh, in a way that is much more um, tied to our lives than just having a phone in our pocket. Um, we're really entering an era where soon everything will be online all the time, not just small little pieces of devices that we carry with us and, and interact with at discrete intervals. Yeah, crazy. I think it's exciting, actually. I think it is crazy, but it's also... It's yeah, also- it's like yeah, crazy in the most positive way possible. <laughs> um, all right, let's see. One more question. Sure. So what training and skills are helpful for someone who is interested in entering the world of user experience and user interface design? Hmm. I think that the, the best designers I've worked with have a little bit of development experience, and the best developers I've worked with have a little bit of design experience. Uh, there are some people who are good at both, but most people aren't. Uh, most people are, are really good at one or the other and great at the other. Or, well, some people are not good at any of them, I suppose, but uh, people who work in the industry tend to have one thing they specialize in. I think being well-rounded, though, is really important because it gives you an exposure to um, the whole stack of tasks that are involved in creating these user experiences. Um, it's very easy to just be a designer and to think in very abstract terms about what you want to create and have a, a kind of a perfect sense of how a user's experience will go. But at the end of the day, they still have to work with your product on a real physical device, and it's constrained by um, processing power and bandwidth, and so um, and also development time. You, you can come up with the most uh, intricate design, but someone has to build it, and if it takes too long to build it or it's too expensive to build it, it won't get built. Yeah, I imagine money comes into it a lot. <laughs> yeah, money, money, and time, and those are both more or less exchange, uh, interchangeable in the world of uh, of technology. So. Yeah, I mean, I think being well-rounded is really important. And so trying one's hand at design, even if someone isn't, you know, especially um, they don't think of themselves as being particularly artistic and also trying one's hand at development, even if they don't think of themselves as being particularly logical. 
uh, is really important just to have that depth of experience. Yeah, that is very good advice. All right. So that is all I have for you, Stuart. Thank you very much for voluntarily coming in to do this interview. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a good night. This has been the Pubcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.thepubcast.org. Thank you.